wrong with Islam if you live in a world where no criticism of Islam is allowed. So in the world, the atheist, like Professor Dawkins, is not a problem. It's really important that he's allowed free reign to speak as he wishes to, but not inside the church. That's a different world. See, when a person like Bishop Spong, of ex-retired Bishop of New Jersey, when he speaks and denies the basic claims of Christ, then we can afford no tolerance. For he comes not just as a Christian, not just as a Christian member, a Christian minister, but as a bishop and as a leader of the church. And to tolerate such false teacher in the heart of God's people, well, that is actually intolerable. But that's, of course, a small problem. For what is the right activity or inactivity against such false teachers? See, we mustn't use the state to enforce our views or rather watch out and beware of them and their falsehoods. But we must so teach the truth and denounce errors, guarding the gospel that has been entrusted to us and not fellowship, not even eating with those who would claim the Lord Jesus Christ but actually deny our Lord. Now this problem has been acute in recent years in world Anglicanism. I'll pick on Anglicanism because I'm Anglican. I could also talk about other denominations, but that would be rude, wouldn't it? And so I'm just talking about Anglicanism, but if this is what I think of Anglicanism, can you imagine I think of your one that I don't belong to? It can only be worse, can't it? So here's just Anglicanism, and you just make the translation to wherever you're coming from. You see, there are leading many bishops, uh, including our own bishops, who were forced to stay away from the Lambeth Conference of World Bishops because of the behaviour and false teaching that had become so intolerable amongst bishops, like Bishop Spong, that to fellowship them with them would be to compromise the truth and damage the witness to Christ. For to fellowship with them would be to accept their falsehoods. And so, those of the truth withdrew back uh, in 2008 from the World Congress of Bishops and set up an alternative one. Jesus himself warned his disciples about the character of false teachers in the passage that we're reading this morning, today from Matthew 16. See verse 6. Jesus said to them in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, it's unusual to have the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the same sentence to have them combined because they're actually the opposite parties who are in contest with each other. It's like saying, watch out for the capitalists and the socialists. And you think, well, who's left? I mean, if you've got the capitalists and the socialists, you've got the lot. It's like saying, watch out for the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. It's just saying the opposite. But he mentions them together because they have come together, Pharisees and Sadducees, for one reason, that is to oppose Jesus. They've come together to test Jesus. Look back at verse 1, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him. They asked him to show a sign from heaven. Whatever differences they had between each other, they had in common their dislike of Jesus. He united his enemies in opposition. 
And they came to test Jesus. Now, this is difficult, friends, because it's impossible to be wary of false teachers without testing them. Indeed, the scripture tells us not to believe everybody, but to test the spirits. But there is testing and there is testing. See, we can test to see how strong and good and true something is. Or we can test to show how weak and bad and false something is. The motivation of the tester is very different. A, a good educationalist will test his students in order to improve them educationally, in order to find out their strengths, in order to help them. But the average student thinks the tester is testing them in order to fail them and to show them what's wrong with them and to get rid of them. And to just It's the mindset of the tester that is really important. I can test with the hope of finding fault or I can test with the hope of finding truth. There's little doubt about the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. They were in no mood to approve Jesus. They were in no mood to listen to him, to understand him, to learn from him. They were against him. And they wanted to show him up as not reaching their standards of conforming to their teaching. They asked for a sign. A sign from heaven to show that God was on his side. They asked for a miracle to prove that he is who he claims to be. Just the previous chapter or so, you know, he, he heals many people, he feeds 5,000, he, he heals the Canaanite woman, he, he, he walked on water two chapters ago, and they're asking for a sign. I mean, he's been doing them left, right and centre, but they ask for it. Jesus' reputation for miraculous actions spread all over Palestine. He'd healed huge numbers of people, fed thousands in the wilderness. He'd hardly hidden his light under a bushel. But now these self-opinionated people were demanding a sign so that they could test him. Jesus didn't do miracles to entertain people. Jesus didn't do miracles so as to amaze people or persuade people or overwhelm people or to demonstrate his power or his divinity. He didn't do miracles on demand so as to show who he was. And so he talked to the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the signs and evil. Look at what is happening, he said. Look at the signs of the times. Do you know how to discern the weather from the signs in the heavens? So look at the signs of the times. For the signs are all there right in front of you, why do you ask for a sign? And the terrible answer to that question is found in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left and departed. You see, the desire to have the exhibition of a miracle on demand is the desire of evil within the heart. Jonah preached to the pagan city of Nineveh. They heard the word of Jonah and were cut to the heart. They repented of their sinfulness, were forgiven and spared the dreadful judgment of God that Jonah had come to warn them of. If the pagan city of Nineveh could hear the voice of God without so much as a sign, why could not the leaders of Israel hear the word of God? without so much as a sign. Jonah was their sign from heaven. The prophet 
who spoke to the pagans and was listened to. The Canaanite woman of chapter 15, verses 21 to 28, just on that same page there, the, the Canaanite, back a page, the Canaanite woman, she was listening to the word of God and she saw her daughter healed. The Gentile crowd at the end of chapter 15, they saw the healings and they glorified the God of Israel. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders, they were part of the evil generation who wouldn't listen to the voice of God. And so they had the sign of Jonah given to them. That's the sign of Jonah. It's not getting out of the big fish. That's between Jonah, God and the fish. People in Nineveh don't know anything about that particularly. What's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is that when the prophet preached to the pagans, they repented. That's the sign of Jonah that you Jews should pay attention to. Very powerful sign. You want a sign? Think of Jonah. Because the people of Nineveh repented. Friends, Jesus did marvellous and extraordinary miracles. But he always doubted people who believed because of the miracles. And he never did them to show off his power. His motives were compassion and help for people in need. And while they demonstrated that he was the Messiah, it was only those who knew the scriptures and knew what to look for that could see in the miracles the Messiah. Remember the parable of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, and the man who had diverse wealth, so it's called divers. The rich man dies, goes to, to, to Hades to be punished. The poor man dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. And there the rich man in his pain and agony looks up to the poor man now enjoying the feast with Abraham and he, he asks Abraham to send back that poor man back to his brothers to warn them so that they wouldn't come to where he, the rich man, was. And Abraham said, it's Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I mean, there's hardly any miracle greater than someone rising from the dead. A dead man's a dead man. To see him come back to life again is an extraordinary thing. I mean, that's the nature of dead is you don't come back. So if a dead man comes back, that is a very impressive miracle. But if you don't believe in Moses and the prophets, you will not understand what the resurrection means. You will not see the significance of a dead man rising. You will not understand how that points to the Messiah. If you know Moses and the prophets, then you will understand what the resurrection means. But without the Old Testament, there is but confusion. A friend of mine shared the gospel late at night with a university student. They were living in the same university college and into the night they discussed the resurrection until in the end the man agreed and said, yes, I see the evidence is your right. Jesus must have risen from the dead. And my friend said, well, then you'll become a Christian. And the man said, no. He said, why not? He said, well, I'm Indian. There's lots of resurrections back in the history of Hinduism. There's hours and hours spent persuading of the evidence. But if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't know what the evidence means. It's not the miracles that should be sought after in testing a new teacher, but the word of God. 
that gives meaning to the miracles that may happen. So once more we come to the danger of leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were well established amongst the people of God but they were like the leaven. They influenced every part of society. They were spread through it like leaven is spread through the dough. But their evil ways were affecting the whole nation, all the people. And here is the reason for such warning and intolerance. See, it's so easy to wink at falsehoods and false teachers and to tolerate a large number of varying opinions and even to be kind of glad that we have all these different opinions within the church, accepting the world's expression of the world's standards of open free expression instead of the church's standards which are actually different to the world's. Within the people of God, there cannot be that tolerance of error and truth muddled in together. We are not a people thrown together by birth who have to learn how to get on with each other, minimising our conflicts and disagreements. That's what society's like, isn't it? You move into a block of home units, there are the other people. The best thing to do, avoid. Keep the door shut. Don't make any friends in the home unit. That's what happens in most home units. In the ones I live in, the only place you ever meet people is in the garage. That's the only place where we're allowed to talk with each other because we live so close to each other we cannot afford to kind of take the risk of having a friendship. Try as I may, I have failed dismally in the last 10 years. It's just not on. We've got to learn how to muddle along with each other. And body corporate meetings is the place where it's more muddle than getting along with each other. It can be awful, those body corporate meetings. So the church is not like that. We are the people gathered by rebirth who have heard the truth of the gospel and are passionate about living by its teaching. Of course, it's possible to be obsessed with orthodoxy that we can strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. Of course, it's possibly so obsessed about teaching that we ignore the need for obedience and holiness of living and so become the kind of hypocrites that Jesus denounced. But when bishops of the Anglican Communion deny the resurrection of Jesus, promote immoral living as moral living, persecute godly men and women for nothing more than preserving the truth, then you can see the failure of tolerating false teaching. For the leaven that Jesus was talking of was the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See it there in verse 12? Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. When teaching turns into action, we come to the point of total intolerance. See, as long as you and I disagree with each other in theory, we can live together with a fair degree of tolerance. It's when we put our beliefs into practice that one of us has to either concede to the other or to leave the fellowship. When the break in fellowship happens, then people are saddened, people are shocked, people are horrified. And great pressure is brought to bear that we will compromise. Real persecution is applied to those who won't compromise. There are godly ministers in the United States of America, in Canada, in the United Kingdom, here in Australia, who are being persecuted by bishops and sinners to this very day. Men like David Short, whose father was one of the deans here at the cathedral, 
many years ago. Bishop Ken Short, his son in Canada, and the great Dr. Jim Packer, who is a great writer and theologian, they have been shunted out of their church. Their property has been taken from them. They have been deregistered. Uh, mind you, the moment in which they got deregistered, they got immediately elected by our cathedral chapter as canons of St Andrew's Cathedral. So they are now Canon Short and Canon Packer because St Andrew's Cathedral, the other side of the world, has supported these men in Vancouver who have been so bitterly persecuted. But the persecution comes at the end of decades of tolerance. See, when it happens, people, oh, how did that happen? But look back and you'll see it's been coming, it's been coming, it's been coming as one doctrine after another has been questioned and, and argued against and one false teaching after another has come to be accepted and come to be accepted until somebody puts that false teaching into operation. And then you either leave or you're persecuted. But the problem lay in the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in the teaching. And this warning of Jesus was the background of the disciples recognising the truth. For Jesus went away with them from the Jewish area up into the pace of Caesarea Philippi and confronted his disciples with decision time. That's why I think the next few weeks in Bible study are really going to be great times to bring your friends because it's decision time in Matthew 16. He confronted them with a decision that asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is in verse 13? Son of Man was his favourite way of talking about himself. And the disciples gave the standard answers of the first century. John the Baptist, Herod said that. Elijah, Malachi 4, promised it would come in. Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. We can ask the same question today. Who do people think Jesus is? And people will say, oh, he's a great teacher. He was a prophet. He was a founder of religion. He was a miracle worker. Or they'll say he was a myth. He was a legend. Actually, Australians are very conservative. They often say he was God or the son of God. But then the real confronting question comes in verse 15. But you, who do you say that I am? I've read it with you written in there because it actually is emphatic on the you. Who do you say that I am? Notice it's a different kind of question, isn't it? It's not asking for objective information. Who do people say that I am? but personal revelation. Who do you say that I am? It's not about what is the truth out there on the street, but what's in your heart and in your mind now. I mean, you meet an American and ask, who did American nation vote for last year? And they'll say, Barack Obama. And then you say, who did you vote for last year? And they'll say, it's none of your business. It was a secret ballot. It's a different kind of question, isn't it? So when I ask the question, who do people say Jesus is, you can freely give all kinds of answers. But when I ask the question, who do you say Jesus is, you are being put on the spot. And on the spot, Peter answered in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. From here on in, the disciples are clear. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel who was Son of David and Son of God. Come to establish the Kingdom of God. There are none to clear. They are none too clear on how he's going to do it. They can't believe he's going to do it by crucifixion, but they know who he is. He's the Christ. But this perception is more than intellectual. 
It's not that the disciples were smarter than the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's not that they weighed the evidence more carefully or had a better process of analysis. People's acceptance of Jesus is not intellectual. It's not unintellectual. It is intellectual, but it's more than intellectual. It's not a leap into the dark of suspicious ignorance. It's a judgment. A judgment of the mind. A judgment based hopefully on the evidence, but it's more than just the intellectual judgment. It's spiritual as well. For verse 17, Jesus goes on. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You ultimately can't argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Like my friend, all night persuading his Hindu friend about the resurrection of Jesus only to find it didn't work. There is nobody so blind as those who will not see. It's God who opens the eyes of the blind. It's God who confuses the mind. It's God who closes the heart. It's God who opens the mind and the heart. It's not a question of pure intellectual detachment. It's not even a question about who Jesus is. It's a question about who you are. What are you living for? How do you intend to live in the future? Why are you living the way you are now? You see, it's one of the most confronting questions you can ever be asked. Who do you think Jesus is? For if he is the Christ, then the inevitable next question is, then why don't you treat him as the Christ? Why are you ignoring him? Why are you living without him? Why are you rejecting his death on your behalf? Why will you not join in his kingdom? If on the other hand the person says that Jesus is not the Christ, then in your opinion, who is Jesus? And what evidence do you have for such an opinion? And is your opinion coloured by your sinfulness that you don't want someone to be the Christ anyone to be the Christ let alone Jesus to be the Christ because you want to be the Christ in your own life you see it's a very pointed question this one who do you think Jesus is blessed are you Simon Bar-Jonah Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, ultimately it's more than an intellectual question, but a spiritual one. And so while we can't argue people into the kingdom of heaven, we certainly should try to pray them into it. Prayer is the way forward. For God, who has had the kindness towards you to reveal to you who Jesus is, may also be kind to your neighbour and reveal to your neighbour who Jesus really is. And so we need to call upon God to open the hearts, to open the minds, to help people see who Jesus is and how we must live in the light of Jesus. Now, for some of you here, I don't know, but you may not yourself yet see Jesus as the Christ. Can I say come the next couple of weeks because you can see where we're going on this discussion and it's going to be about who is Jesus, how do you know, what is the consequence of it. For those of you who do know Jesus as the Christ, 
you can see why it's really important to be praying for your friends now and to be bringing them because this part of the Bible really puts the pointed question for people. And they may not like me, but they like you. And so after I've put the pointed question to them, you can walk back to work and ask them about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for those of us who do not know Jesus, that we may, by your Spirit, know him. And we pray for our friends who do not yet know Jesus, that your Spirit would work in their hearts, opening their minds, opening them to the great news that your Son reigns, that he has paid for the sin of us all, that we can be forgiven, we can be reborn, we can be in his kingdom as your children. We do pray, Father, that you would help us as we share this news with others, as we invite them to come and study your word, as we talk to them about the wonder of Jesus Christ and his death for us. We pray, Father, for your spirit to give us boldness and confidence to speak, but also for your spirit to open their hearts and minds to hear this message. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.